Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting June 21st. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, renowned biologist and writer Edward O. Wilson. He gave a talk last week at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City. We'll hear a few clips from that appearance, after which I had a chance to speak with him, and we'll also play that interview. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. So without further ado, E.O. Wilson. Most people are astonished to learn that uh, possibly only 10% of the kinds of plants and animals and microorganisms, especially when you throw in little creatures, what I like to call the little creatures that run the earth, you know, the small invertebrates and the microorganisms, 10% of the kinds of the species uh, may be known, and the number remaining to be discovered may be 90%. Uh, we have just begun the great Linnaean enterprise that was begun by Carolus Linnaeus in Uppsala uh, 250 years ago. And we tapered off that effort, or we were at risk of tapering it off when uh, the molecular revolution occurred, which was, of course, one of the major advances of all time, but nonetheless tended to overshadow our effort to continue the mapping and understanding of life's diversity on this planet. So with something like 1.8 million species of all kinds of organisms known to science, given a formal name, attached to specimens that have been authenticated in places like the American Museum of Natural History so that we can make final determination on species uh, for whatever purpose we need that knowledge. Uh, we are facing now uh, tens of millions of species yet to be discovered. And why should we try to do this? Why should we bother? And the answer is uh, every reason in the world. If we don't know uh, the nature of most of the life with which we're leading, living, and it, you know, the numbers of species could be upwards of not just 10 million, to a, but as many as 100 million. We don't know the nearest order of magnitude of how many kinds there are. And if we don't know that, if we don't know what's in the little lake out in, in uh, Central Park, for example, or down to the lowest level, say, including the microorganism that runs so much of the machinery of life in that little lake, then we do not understand the ecology of it. We only understand the certain broad features of what's happening there, and we will not be able to master uh, and uh, in any sense protect and control the basic processes of the ecosystems of the world until we do. Moreover, we will always continue to be taken by surprise when um, a new pathogen appears. Well, this is just new biodiversity coming in from another country. Uh, countries around the world are being swamped with alien species. Some of these we call invasive species because they become pests, but many others are simply pathogen parasites. West Nile uh, is an example. And these are going to continue to sweep in uh, without, uh, and we won't know about them until people start getting sick. We need to be able to know where they are in advance and know what the likelihood is that they might be transmitted and what might be transmitting them. And this is going to take an enormous amount of research, and it's going to yield a vast amount of priceless information in basic science and in human practical concerns. 
Now, if I sound like a um, like a Baptist um, uh, pastor preaching, and that's my background, I was raised a Southern Baptist, uh, it is with sincerity, recognizing, as I think increasingly historians and philosophers, scientists recognize, that biology of the future, now and of the future both, uh, consists of three dimensions. One is the up and down thorough studies across all levels of biological organization from the molecule to position in the ecosystem of a small number of, of um, typical uh, species that are studied in thoroughness. And there may be no more than a couple dozen of those for the most part that we focused on. That's one dimension of biology, and that's what has dominated biology, particularly down at the molecular and cell level, because of its great relevance for medicine primarily uh, through the last few decades. But then the second dimension is what I just referenced, and that is the diversity of life. And then the third is yet another concept of uh, the um, uh, another dimension of modern biology, and that's the tree of life tracking the history of all of these species. And of course, there is in this implicit a urgent mission to save uh, life diversity because it's disappearing rapidly. I won't burden you with giving you the figures except to say that I think most people who work in the field, most scientists who work in the field of biodiversity, uh, agree that we're going to lose a great many of the life forms of Earth. The figure one-half of all the species of plants and animals is often agreed upon by the end of the century unless we can somehow abate all these enormous changes that are human-caused from global warming and climate change on. Uh, and so this becomes in a matter of some urgency. It's not as easy to get across to the public as, say, um, the need to cure cancer. But it is, in a way as equally urgent because this is what's going to affect all generations to come, the loss of biodiversity, and as it is lost, a lot is lost with it, both in terms of economic, future economic potential, of environmental security, which is dependent upon large biodiversity, and not least spirituality. Some of Wilson's time on stage was spent talking with Michael Novacek, the museum's science provost and curator of paleontology. What about the division between biology and other forms of knowledge? You've written about this, and C.P. Snow has certainly written about recognizing the chasm between the scientific and the literary culture. Um, what do you think can bridge that chasm? Uh well, I've written an entire book on that. I, you, you may have mentioned Consilience, Consilience okay. Unity of Knowledge, which was published eight years ago. And so what I proposed simply was that the chasm, as you mentioned it, was not a uh, some kind of an epistemological fault line, you know, that, that these really were different areas of knowledge of reality that could never be brought together. That was a traditionalist, structuralist view. Um, and there was no chasm there at all. There was just a large domain of largely unexplored phenomena that were beginning to be understood. And I suggested that where the disciplines would come together 
social sciences reaching across to the biological sciences, the two of them growing and anastomosing even, uh, would be particularly where uh, we study together the brain and the mind and also the evolution of the human species and the subject of human nature, both biologically and also from the viewpoint of the social sciences humanities. So where this is, in fact, beginning to happen is from one side, subjects like cognitive neuroscience, uh, brain scan mapping, human behavioral genetics, neuroanatomy, uh, detailed studies of human physiology in reference to behavioral patterns, and from the other side, from the social sciences side, say anthropology, the patterns of human behavior that are consistent, that we call the universal traits of human nature, and from the psychology side, and that's now called evolutionary anthropology, and from the psychologist side, we have evolutionary psychology, which is uh, contributing more and more studies of higher levels of human behavior that can be examined in this depth and linking it to the biological discipline. That's a little bit long-winded, but the point here is that gradually we're beginning to see some bridges built of cause and effect explanation, which seem to be abolishing the old C.P. Snow division between the two cultures. You call yourself a naturalist, you know, um, but sometimes some people say, well, a naturalist is a rather quaint phrase, um, rather like stamp collecting. Not that stamp collecting is necessarily a bad thing either. Uh, is there such a thing as a modern naturalist? Oh, there really is indeed. Uh, I, I've been working hard to bring that term back to respectability. And they, I, I call my uh, memoir, my autobiography, Naturalist. And uh, I think it ought to be a kind of an in-your-face approach in reinstituting natural history, not just as part of our basic education for all the reasons that uh, one can imagine about our relationship, you know, to the natural world that I was citing a moment ago, uh, but also because I see it as a big part of the future of uh, of science. A part of, it's a superb way to uh, get introduced into science, children, adults, to participate in what we call citizen science, to do in in the totality of it. Uh, really first-rate science, because I believe so much of science, that is biology, which is, I think, going to be the dominant science of the 21st century, so much of it is going to consist of exploring the world and figuring out how things work, you know, species by species, each species unique in its own right, each species up to a million years old, each species exquisitely adapted to a particular environment and the species locked together in systems and symbioses. This is the real world. And uh, we can't just figure this out with mathematics and, uh, you know, pure logic. We're going to have to get out and actually find out what the real world is like before we can put together a truly modern biology. More with E.O. Wilson right after this. For breaking news about science and technology, visit www.siam.com news today.
A two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, E.O. Wilson has a new book out. It's a compilation of his work spanning six decades. It's called Nature Revealed, Selected Writings, 1949 to 2006. After he signed a few hundred copies for his fans at the museum, I had a chance to speak with him, mostly about points he raised during the evening that you haven't already heard about in the clips. Ed Wilson, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for talking to us. Well, thank you for having me. A couple of quick questions based on uh, what you were talking about at at your uh, lecture tonight. Uh, You had a kind of a general optimism. Why are you optimistic in general about about the future of life on Earth? Well, basically because people are smart, and they just need to see the dimensions of a problem more or less in full uh, to... Uh, act on it and act rationally. I think right now they're acting out of ignorance of the problem and uh, a sense that somebody else besides themselves will take care of it. You were talking also about the importance of uh, what you thought the importance of an unstructured childhood was. You you said that, uh, what was it about soccer moms that you said? (laughs) Well, maybe I was a bit harsh. I just said soccer moms are the greatest enemy of natural history. And I assumed you meant the, the, the incredibly structured childhoods that kids have now. That is correct, uh, of uh, having a day scheduled all through, whereas there should be lengthy periods day after day for the full development of a child to let them turn, turn them loose and let them explore, preferably by themselves or at most with a friend on their own, uh, the natural environment, at least some simulation of the natural environment, let them discover things on their own and then give them the opportunity to learn about the things they've discovered. They ought to be able to mess up the environment a little bit, too, to the extent of bringing home a frog, uh, having a pet uh, snake or something of this sort, uh, and uh, the sensation of exploring and, and being in control of their own destinies for a while. And that was your experience as a kid? That was my experience. It's also been the common experience of a great many scientists and naturalists for generations. Um, can you talk a little bit about the move away from kin selection? You mentioned it this evening. I realize you're short on time, but if you can, kin selection has been something that we've heard about as sort of gospel for many decades now, and, and now the move seems to be away from that. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Actually, I helped put that in motion uh, 30 years ago with sociobiology, even before that with my book, The Insect Societies, that the idea that uh, uh, social behavior and altruism that you see in an advanced state in the uh, social insects, ants, and termites, bees, and wasps, was uh, substantially, uh, if not driven, it was substantially biased by uh, the benefit that comes, the Darwinian benefit that comes from favoring the genes of collateral relatives, you know, like brothers, sisters, Mm -hmm. aunts, nieces, cousins, so that even by uh, being altruistic yourself, uh, you'd be passing on your own genes, which include altruism genes, to uh, these close relatives. That was the gospel. But now the evidence is mounting against that, uh, and uh, multiple levels of evidence, and the base seems to be eroding under it. And uh, the evidence is beginning to lean toward an alternative explanation, which is that uh, it is, in fact, the whole group that gets acted on that this kind of recognition and collateral altruism is not the key. The key is the superiority of the group over solitaires and other groups. And um, that seem, may seem like a indistinct uh, separation, but it is very profound. 
And I have to stress too that the, uh, that this is simply something that I believe is in transition and it's controversial in the sense that not all have accepted the shift. So we'll be arguing about it for some time, but when it, if it does move that way, as I think it will, I've worked a lot on this, uh, then uh, it will uh, cause a rather profound shift in the way we think about the origin of social behavior, at least in the insects. The mere mention of group selection is enough to uh, get some people to say bad things. It was made into a taboo erroneously uh, 40 years ago, and um, it has, I think, moved us up a blind alley. Now it's time to pull out, uh, resume serious consideration of group selection, because we now have models and we have evidence to uh, support it. One more question. You talked about the fact that you are in favor of genetically modified crops. And that's uh, a lot of environmentalists are uh, kind of knee-jerk against GM foods in general. So uh, can you just uh, state your position on the, the GM crops? Uh, I've That's another subject I've studied a lot, uh, you know, privately. I'm not uh, an expert on uh, genetic modification of crops. But nonetheless, I've looked at a lot of the evidence. I've even I've spoken to people on both sides of it including industry representatives, and I came out with the same conclusion that, incidentally, the National Academy of Sciences came out with, that when carefully monitored and used uh, judiciously, uh, genetically modified crops can make an enormous difference because they uh, allow us to uh, move, for example, they will help allow us to move to uh, dryland agriculture when, when the water goes gives out and it's giving out uh, in many parts around the world. Uh, it would allow the uh, planting of, of crops and superior crops in many cases in areas that are now wasteland and apparently not arable, and thus increase the food supply uh, very substantially, uh, probably dramatically. And, of course, what I have in mind is that uh, very much of the motivation of a conservationist. I want to take the pressure off of the remaining natural environments. And hungry, poor people are clearing the natural environments too fast and they're planting poor, unproductive crops uh, in these areas, using up the soil and then moving on to destroying other natural environments. We don't, they don't need to be doing that. We don't need to be promoting it. We should be moving, I think, uh, through uh, genetically modified crops uh, to a much uh, more uh, uh, sensible and productive form of agriculture. I know you're in a hurry, so I'll let you go, and thank you very much. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. Wilson's latest book, again, is called Nature Revealed, Selected Writings, 1949-2006. to We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families, online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, there's a new kind of soccer ball being used in the World Cup, and some scientists say it might dip and swerve in a funny way at some crucial point in this year's tournament. Story two, another sports item. You know, in golf, a birdie is one under par on a hole. The U.S. Golf Association announced last week they want to give the birdie a more specific taxonomic designation. One under par will therefore now be officially an egret. Story three, Italian scientists found that grapes used in popular red wines contain high levels of melatonin, the compound that our brains naturally produce to help us fall asleep. And story four, researchers are using dogs to help them go whaling. 
They're hunting not for rare right whales, but for the whale's scat. Time's up. Story four is true, the Boston Globe reports, that researchers trying to learn more about the estimated 350 North Atlantic right whales use dogs to help them sniff out the lingering scent of whale scat. Globe writer Beth Daly notes that the dogs have led to what you might call an excremental increase. Researchers can now find four times as much whale stuff as they used to. The catch helps offer clues about diseases the whales might be fighting, not to mention hormones showing if a whale is pregnant, and DNA that can help researchers identify specific individuals. An article on the use of dogs in whale research will come out shortly in the Journal of Cetacean Research and Management. Story three is true. Many red wine grapes apparently do contain the sleep-inducing molecule melatonin, according to a study in the Journal of the Science of Food and Agriculture. The researchers conjecture that the melatonin might be why red wine helps people relax. I'm still betting on the alcohol. And story one is true. The soccer ball used in this year's World Cup has only 14 panels rather than the usual 26 panels. Fewer panels means fewer seams slicing through the air, and that may mean that a ball kicked or headed just right could behave a lot more like a baseball knuckleball dipping and darting in unpredictable directions, and that could make one unlucky goaltender's life seem a lot worse. All of which means that story two about the U.S. Golf Association officially changing birdies to egrets is, of course, totally bogus. What's true, however, is I was at the U.S. Open in Westchester last week, and I overhear this guy talking to his girlfriend, and he's explaining that on a hole, if you get one under par, that's a birdie, and two under is called an eagle, and three under is called an albatross. And she says, oh, they name them after birds, so like four under could be a hummingbird, she says, and five under on a hole could be... Oh, an egret, she says, and six under on a hole could be a pterodactyl. She really said that. And, of course, a pterodactyl is not a bird. Um, And you can't have six under on a hole because there aren't any holes more than... There are a few rare par sixes, but you're not going to find any par sevens. And if you could, you couldn't get a hole in one anyway. So if you ever hear anybody who tells you that they did get six under on a hole, go ahead and tell them that it is officially called a pterodactyl, because then you'll both be lying. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember, Science News updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 